Okay, we are going to be in Luke this morning. I think you're probably getting lots of Luke from those of us over the hill because we're preaching through Luke right now. So, uh, whether, whether you're tired of Luke or not, hopefully you're not. Luke 5 is where we're going to start. Before we jump into reading the passage, I want to talk quickly about road trips. What is your personality? What is your family's personality on road trips? Are you a burn it to get to the destination? Don't slow down. Don't pull off. Don't look at scenic routes. Get there so that then you can brag and boast to everyone about how long it took you to get there and how you didn't let your children stop and use the bathroom along the way or whatever else. Or are you someone that always takes the slow road, always takes the pullouts, always takes the little turns right or left? I know in our culture, there's something romantic about the second one, but I unapologetically, I'm a first. I like to get there. A lot of it's because we travel back towards the middle of the country quite a bit because all of my family and my wife's family are from Oklahoma. So we're making these trips somewhat regularly. We used to when our kids were younger more than now. Now that all our kids are high school and college age, we don't really go back as frequently. Um, but whenever you're traveling with kids and you're trying to get somewhere, there's, there seems to be, in my estimation, I, I don't mind the freeways. I like going 75 plus and just keep cruising, right? It isn't, yeah, it's ugly, but man, is it efficient. And so I think there's something, there's something deep within me about that, whether it's problematic, there's probably even, there's, there's probably all kinds of things we could do with that. And the real reason I'm talking about that is I think about this metaphor of sort of the, the detour taker versus the, uh, the person who's in a hurry to get to where they want to go whenever I'm preparing and thinking about passages like the one we're going to read. Because there's so many interesting things, and this is a fairly famous passage. It's when Jesus calls his first disciples, the miraculous catch of fish. And there's so many interesting things in this passage that, that when we're reading it for our personal devotion, or in my case when I'm preaching it, that are very tempting to pull out and look at all the different little surveys. And to the point, in, in, in my opinion, that you could end up in your personal devotion or in preaching losing the big point of the passage, right? Losing the whole reason that you're going there. In other words, I'm, I'm very presently aware this morning, I could preach this passage and talk about lots of things that I'm given permission to talk about from the passage and still somehow miss the main point of the passage. You see what I'm saying? And those of us, those of our churches, and yours is one of them, that is committed to what we call exegetical preaching, preaching the Bible, trying to get the Bible's message out, we don't want to make that mistake. We want to, as best we can, in our fallible understanding, Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit that helps us with that. We want to do the best we can to draw out the important point of the passage should be the important point of the sermon. Or, for your personal time, the important point of the passage should be the important point that you're asking the Holy Spirit to apply to your life. It doesn't mean that there's not other secondary points, tangential points that can be very helpful that the Lord and the Spirit might even use that might actually even become for your personal private reading the more important thing that day. But you certainly don't want to make the mistake of saying, oh, this is more meaningful for me, therefore this is the main point. No, we can't make that mistake. The main point has to be the main point. Other things might be meaningful. So I'm, I'm setting all that up just because um, I am going to treat this passage like a road trip back to New Mexico or Oklahoma. I'm going to sprint through it to the main point. And because of that, 
Oh, there's going to be lots of interesting things that we could stop that might be, there's going to, we're, some of you might say, hey, wait, you missed, you missed a detour there. I would have liked to have heard more about that. But I think that, that what I'm doing is justified in the sense of let's get to what I think is quite clearly in this passage, the primary points. Let's read it. I think we'll all sort of be familiar and then we'll jump in. So we are in Luke 5, starting in verse 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gessenaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nuts. Getting to one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put it out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them, and they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. So the story is familiar. It's really not a lot of questions as far as the text about what's being communicated. And it's very clear. It's a clear passage. So we're going to race through it. We're going to work our way through it, but quite quickly. The very first thing that I notice in verse 1 is the, the role of the crowd. I always view the crowd in all of the gospel narratives as sort of its own character in the plot. Right, the crowd. The think about it, and typically, at least for me, I typically have a negative view of the crowd. Primarily because at the end of the story, what happens to the crowd? The crowd is who screams, "Crucify him!" Also, in the early stages, even in Luke itself, we see the crowd already wanted to kill Jesus, um, and so I, 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 I'm faced with in this passage, I have a negative presupposition, we might say, towards the crowd. And then I'm faced with that immediately because in this passage, the crowd is pressing in around Jesus. And I love the way that the passage is written. They're not just pressing around Jesus simply because he's going to heal him, them. It, the passage says the crowd is pressing in on him to hear the word of God. One of the reasons I have a negative view of the crowd often is I kind of think, oh, you guys just want to be fed. You guys just want to be healed. You guys just want to get something from Jesus, and when he finally and ultimately didn't give you what you wanted, you turned on him. But Luke here is helping us to see, no, at this point in Jesus' ministry, the crowd is pressing in on Jesus because they recognize that he taught with authority, which is what the crowd says of Jesus in a pre chapter previous. He teaches with authority, not like our religious teachers. So they're crowded around him, to get the word of God. This creates a problem, right? What's the problem? The problem is he, he's got so many people clamoring around him, right? That, that he doesn't even really have room to maneuver. He doesn't have room to, to work. doesn't have room to breathe. 
It's almost like a, a rock star or an NBA player coming out of their hotel and all those crowds are gathered around them. And they're you know, wanting an autograph and you've seen it on TV. Some of you may have even seen it live. It, it, you get the sense that, wow, Jesus's ministry has affected and impacted and touched people's lives to the point that he was essentially a crowd drawing star of his day. Problem is he wants to teach. Doesn't have any room to teach. Problem solved. How is the, sol the solution? The solution is there's some boats on the side of the water. Verse 2, he saw the boats by the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them, were washing their nets, getting to one of the boats, which was Simon's. He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boats. Problem solved. Crowd crowding around Jesus. Jesus has no room to work, has no room to breathe. Salute solves the problem by jumping in some boats, pulling off from land a little ways, creating a natural amphitheater over the water. The crowd can see him. Uh, a great solution to the problem. Obviously, at this point of the passage, those of us who are within the Christian tradition recognize something really big is happening, and that is we're having a very crucial character introduced to us, namely Simon Peter, not to mention James and John, but Simon Peter specifically, who will become, in many ways, if, if you're going to cast the New Testament, or the Gospels at least, Peter would at least be sort of the second billing to Jesus. And in some ways, because, because, of, because of the ups and downs of Peter and, and sort of the, 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 the path that Peter's journey takes, in some ways it might even be the first billing, the person who plays the role of Peter. So here we have our Peter introduction. It's actually, as we'll look at it as we go into it, it's a little bit a characteristic of the Peter that we see in the rest of the Gospels. In this passage, and really throughout the Gospels, we have this balance. It's almost like a seesaw of Jesus' teaching and Jesus' healing. Often they go together, but not always. And so right off the bat, I want us just, just to think through, okay, what's the primary point of the passage? It might be the teaching. It might be the miracle or the healing. In this case, it's a miraculous catch of fish, not a healing. Or it might be something different. And some of us, if we're honest, some of us are really drawn to the teaching of Jesus. right? We really like the teaching of Jesus. And maybe because we, we have some negative experiences with the charismatic movement or something like that, we, we might even be prone to undervalue the miraculous actions of Jesus. For whatever reason. Some of us might be more prone to be drawn towards the miraculous actions of Jesus, the marvelous Jesus, and without realizing it, maybe we underplay the teachings of Jesus. Obviously, we don't want to do this. We don't want to be Thomas Jefferson on the one hand. Right? Thomas Jefferson loved the teachings of Jesus, except for anywhere that Jesus claimed to be God or do anything miraculous. We also don't want to be King Herod. What's King Herod? King Herod wanted Jesus just to be a magician, didn't believe anything he said, didn't have anything to do with his teaching, but hey, do some magic. That's cool. So we want to never separate these, even though I think that it's very tempting for us, even as mature Christians, to sort of get caught up in one or the other. Now in this passage, it's very clear that the teaching is not the primary point of the passage. And I can explain why very quickly. We are told that Jesus teaches, but we don't get any record of what he teaches from the boats. Right? 
pulls off, he teaches the crowd. So the point of this passage, certainly, unlike maybe uh, the Sermon in the Plain that's coming up in a couple of chapters later, the point of this passage is certainly not the content of the teaching, because we don't get any content of this teaching. It's very likely that Jesus, like anyone else who would travel, probably taught similar things multiple times. So maybe even the Sermon on the Plain that comes up later has some components, some aspects of what uh, Jesus even taught here. But the fact of the matter is, the author is not at all worried about us knowing what Jesus taught. Just that he taught. Because the second stone seems to be more important in this particular passage, and that is the miraculous event. The miraculous catch of fish. So Jesus teaches from the boats. They're already out. When he finished speaking, verse 4, he says to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. We don't get any hint of Simon's attitude here being anything other than um, oh, we did fish all night Jesus and uh, not trying to be rude but I'm a fisherman you're not a fisherman right so we've already tried this and it's not worked but it does seem like there's no sarcasm it seems like he's like okay but at your word we'll do it again master is a word that he's using to refer, refer to Jesus that seems to be all right master we'll try it I'm sure in his heart he was full of doubts that it would work but his response was very much one of We'll try. It's caught me as I think about this exact moment. I, I would love to just sort of capture this moment and do some, uh, some interviews of what's Peter thinking, what's James and John thinking, what are they all thinking? Because I guarantee it had to be in their minds they're thinking, who is this guy? Who is, what, right, what, what right does the preacher have to tell the fishermen where to fish? Give me a break. Give me a break. How, how on earth could you know something about fish that we don't know? It's bad enough that the carpenter's son is telling him where to fish. It's the preacher who's telling him where to fish. The, the preacher in the right context is a powerful person. The preacher, whenever the preacher is doing something with you that you're better at, right? If you're a carpenter, you don't want the preacher telling you where to make the cuts. My brother and I used to, we, where we grew up is in a very rural area, and we would, we would hunt birds fairly regularly. And one time every year, my dad would host um, a, a bird hunt. And from our local church, some of the pastors would join us. And then even more so, sometimes from some of the, like we would have our own visiting preachers would come, and people from Oklahoma City, which was five or six hours away, is a good ways away, they would drive up. And so we'd have this hunt, and we'd sort of have like kind of, 50% locals and 50% ministry types, preachers. And my brother and I, this was because we were in high school and probably not very godly, we would make fun of the preachers and how bad they were at hunting. Right? They didn't know what they were doing. It wasn't just that we'd make fun of them. We'd kind of stay away from them because they could kind of be a little dangerous. Right? Someone who hasn't hunted a lot, really excited, really eager. They're type A personalities because they're preachers and they're by golly going to do something. They're going to they're gonna get something that day. And you're like, okay, stay, put all the preachers down there. Let them shoot each other and the locals will come over here. It's a whole lot more firing going on down there than over here, but there's a whole lot more birds been getting got over here than over there. And there's something about that, right? That the preacher doing what the preacher does is like, okay, I can't do that, Jesus. But now, Jesus, you're telling me something that I do know more about than you, or at least I would think that I do because I'm a fisherman 
if I'm Peter. Jesus says, go do it, and they do it. So maybe this is the primary point of the passage. Maybe the primary point of the passage is for us to be awed at the miraculous catch of fish. And what that displays about the character of Jesus. And what that displays about the miraculous work of Jesus. Or what that displays about who Jesus is, what Jesus is here for, and what Jesus is going to do. But I don't think that's the point of the passage either. Not the primary point. It's a bigger point of the passage than the teaching. Teaching isn't even referred. But even this miraculous catch of fish is setting up for something. Right? Verse 6, they had done this. They did what Jesus said. They enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come help them. They came and they filled the boats so that they began to sink. The, the passage doesn't end in verse 7. The narrative doesn't end in verse 7. No, no, no. This miraculous story is setting up for the final few verses and that is the response. The response of Simon Peter and his friends to this miraculous event. I think there's a lesson here. There's a lesson here in, in, in reading our Bibles, and specifically, I think, the Gospels generally and into Acts. The lesson is, as you're reading the Gospels and Acts, notice how many times the miraculous event is followed by the point of the miraculous event. Particularly in Acts. It's very clear in Acts. Luke also, because you have the same author as Acts, but throughout the Gospels, it's not at all uncommon that the more exciting part of the story isn't where the story ends. There's some teaching that comes after that exciting part of the story. That's exactly what we have here. This is super exciting. If any of us had been here, this is what we would have posted on Instagram to tell people about. This was crazy. This was wild. But this miraculous catch of fish is not the point that the author is driving towards in the passage. So anytime you're reading... This is a good thing for us to, to be working with our kids and teaching our kids about because often the way that we think about Bible stories with our kids is sort of the story, just the actions. That's okay. It's better for them to know that than nothing. But sometimes we can miss, wait, wait, the point of this story was the response. And that's easier for us to get our hands on, for us to think, how should we respond? How should we respond to Jesus, our master? Or do we respond in the same way to Jesus, our master, that Peter responds to Jesus here? The other thing, as a sidebar, and I, I love at this point in the story, you could ask the question, who caught the fish? <laughs> right? Who's primary, who should we credit for the big catch of fish? Well, Peter and the guys actually pulled the nets in. But Jesus is the one that told them where to do it. And obviously there's, there's some debate in this. And I, I never really get too much into these debates. But in the, in the uh, commentaries, there's some debates of what miracle was at play from Jesus here? Was it a miracle of omniscience? Jesus knew where the fish were that they didn't know. Or was it a miracle of omnipotence? Jesus sort of filled the nets with fish. You see the difference? I don't, not too worried about it. It doesn't matter. All that matters is experienced lifetime fishermen did not catch fish. Jesus says, go do it over here, and they catch fish. 
But the cool part about the question is, whose responsibility was it to catch the fish? I think there's something there for us, right? Is the simple act of obedience allowed the disciples to reap this incredible harvest of fish. So our job is just the simple act of obedience. The simple act of obedience of, of sh showing up on a Sunday morning to love one another and to encourage one another and, to, and to, to, to obey the scriptures of not neglecting the gathering. That's a simple act of obedience. But that's the kind of simple act of obedience that Jesus and God can use to, to produce miraculous results. The simple act of obedience, of giving, to support local ministries, to, su to support worldwide missions. You're, it's so tempting. None of us have the kinds of resources where we feel like, wow, I'm funding the incredible. So it's just that simple act, that simple act of putting down our nets. Jesus, you do with this. You're the one that can do the miraculous with my simple act of obedience. It's a good reminder for us. But here we find ourselves at, at the destination, at the point of the passage uh, that we've been pushing through to get to all along. And that is the response of the fisherman, namely Simon Peter, to the miraculous event. That's the point. That's what we're driving towards that's where we want to let ourselves bathe a little bit. So I'm just going to read it in verse 8, make some observations, and then we're going to chase down a few questions at the end. Verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch a fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. As I'd already hinted, we have this, this really is the introduction to this key character, Simon Peter. When I think of Simon Peter, I don't know about you, I think of the Simon Peter that we see throughout the rest of the Gospels. Because this first introduction of Simon Peter is a little bit different. When I think of Simon Peter, I think of at times a little prideful, at times very confident, at times rash, right? Willing to do things, jump to conclusions, doing things that... Jesus at times even pulls him to the side at once and says, get behind me, Satan. That's what I think of when I see Peter. Uh, there's a word for this. Uh, I learned this word recently. Uh, the word is ideation. So we had four high school age kids, one's in college at Biola this year as a freshman. Um, and when she, about two years ago, we were trying to help her with some sort of, you know, testing that allows her to realize kind of what, what are her gifts, what is she good at, what kinds of things should she might want to study or do as a profession or whatever else. And her results came back, and this was, a, this was a, a different sort of battery than we had taken before, and it said that she was very high in what's called ideation. 
Ideation on this test means you produce lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of ideas. You're a fountain of ideas. If you have a high ideation, right now some of you are saying, oh, my husband has that, and some of you are saying my wife has that. Right? It's just a, a person with high ideation runs into no roadblocks because a roadblock comes on a high ideation person says, no, no, no problem, we'll just go over here and do this, right? Or a high ideation person, you can imagine in a business, it's, it's helpful to have a high ideation person. But it's sometimes you've got the more pragmatic people saying, okay, now you have us chasing all these different ideas to the point that we're not making any money, right? So we have to have ideation plus other things. But when I think of Peter, I think of someone who's got lots of ideas. And he usually is running his mouth about his ideas. Think about the transfiguration. Jesus reveals himself in his glory. Fear and awe is the response of the other disciples. And Peter pretty quickly says, hey, I have an idea. Let's build a tabernacle, right? They come to arrest Jesus. No one really knows what to do. Peter says, I have an idea. Let's just start fighting. Let's just grab swords. Let's go for it. So Peter is prone to have an idea. And sometimes, at least for Peter, and I would say for me as well sometimes, when my ideation is high, uh, humility is not in line with ideation because you're trusting in yourself to come up with great ideas to solve the problem and get out of the get out of the the situation that you're in but in this situation i i love the fact that our first introduction to simon peter he has no ideas all he does is fall humbly at the feet of jesus true his true character starts showing up later but in the first initial response of who Peter is, what do we see? We just see Simon Peter falls down at Jesus' knees and says, Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He doesn't have any ideas. Hey, I have an idea. Let's go over there and fish. Let's really make a lot of money fishing. Let's make you a partner. Right? Hey, I have an idea. You're like, Bring me along with you. Like, his response is full of humility and a proper response at the Lordship of Jesus. I don't think in his words are uh, when he says, I'm a sinful man, I think he's just representing us there, right? And he, he is representing, I am a sinful human. I'm, I'm bumping up against something other, something holy, something divine, something I don't understand fully, something I don't recognize. I don't think he's saying um, fishermen are a lower class of citizens that were thought of as sinners, and I'm a fisherman, so I'm, you know, if I weren't a fisherman, I wouldn't say this. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's got specific sins in mind, although he might. I think what he's saying is, I am not like you, Jesus. There's something about you. Whatever it is that you just did demonstrated to me an otherness, an holiness, a distinctness that I recognize. And because of that, because I recognize this is all of our response. Anytime we touch up against holiness, if anything, uh, growing up in the church and being around Christianity too long can dole us to this, to the point that we sort of, uh, we take for granted the fact that a holy God would accept us into his presence. But here we have Peter's response being, man, I don't deserve to, to be around you. Depart from me. The word that we get here is astonishment particularly in verse um, 9, all of them were astonished. But within that astonishment, there's obviously some kind of fear because Jesus himself says, don't be afraid. So the response when they see sort of this glimpse of who Jesus is, just a short little glimpse, the short little glimpse of who Jesus is, there's, there's astonishment, there's fear, there's, I don't know what to do with this. 
my brain doesn't comprehend who this person is. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. On these sorts of passages, I like often thinking, what does Jesus say in response to Peter? But also, what does Jesus not say? So Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. But before we tackle that a little bit, what does he not say? You know, one thing he does not say is he doesn't say, oh, Peter, don't be too hard on yourself. Come on now, positive thinking. Let's, let's have our best life now. Let's think positively. Oh, why are you beating yourself up, Peter? I don't want you, you, you've got some negative thoughts in your head. You're not, you're not so bad. Like, Jesus isn't being some sort of divine therapist here. Now, neither is Jesus setting up to be the shame police either. Oh, yeah, you're right, Peter. You're a pretty horrible person. In fact, I know everything you've ever done. And you're despicable. You're disgusting. And these other guys are pretty bad, too. Yeah, you're right. <clears throat> you're right. Shame on you. Right? So Jesus does neither of those two things. And I bring that up because I think deep in our hearts when we come to Jesus, when we come to God in a similar state, I think many of us think that God would respond in one of those two ways. Yeah, you're right. You are kind of trash, but I'll try to use you anyway. I'll do my best with you. Or, oh, don't beat yourself up. You're a great person. But really what Jesus says, I think, is more miraculous than anything else. And don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to work for me. I'm going to put you into practice. I'm going to give you a job. I'm, I've got a mission for you. It gets him in, 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 entirely outside of himself and what it is that he's claiming or saying. Depart from me, I'm sinful. He says, don't be fearful. Join me. Come. From now on, you have a new occupation. You woke up a fisherman for fish, but at the end of the day, you're not thinking about fish anymore because you've had this exchange with Jesus. And now, from now on, you won't be catching fish anymore. You'll be catching men. So we have two different responses. That's the primary point of the passage. The two first responses, we have this verbal response. The wording has come from Peter. Uh, you, re you recognize by the, by the actions of the other disciples, the future disciples, that they're, they're obviously having a similar response. Uh, so you have a verbal response, depart from me. We're all astonished. And then Jesus says, uh, don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. Join me. You'll be catching men. And then we have the second part of the response, which is their actions. Final verse. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So they didn't just have a verbal response that's not followed by action. They had a verbal response of depart from me that's followed by the action that proves that their verbal response is authentic. They proved that they were willing to leave everything and follow Jesus. And this is the point of the passage that when I read this passage, it's the final verse that rings in my ears. How about you? It's this final verse that in some ways almost haunts me in the best sense of the word and maybe sometimes the worst sense of the word because when I read that these men, professionals, left their profession, left everything to follow Jesus, the haunting part for me is, wow, wow, would I be willing to do that? Am I willing to do that? 
We have missionaries in our church. One preached last Sunday. He and his young family have a, a he, he, he has, have, once he finished his seminary education, he has a, a unique calling to be teaching at missionary sending schools outside of the United States so that they're sending non-Americans onto the mission field. So he was in um, somewhere in Asia for a while, and now they're going to be relocating to the Netherlands, which is an incredibly important place and an incredibly important ministry for them to be involved in. And I'm not close with them, but we've spent some time. They've, they've been with COVID. They've been home for a few months. Now. Actually, I think almost a full year before they're leaving again. So I've got to spend some more time with this missionary couple than I would have been other, able to otherwise. And when I hang out with people like that, I sometimes feel, I don't know if you're like me, but I feel a little bit like, man, would I be willing to do that? <laughs> Am I willing to give up everything and go do what they did? When, when my wife and I, we were, we were in seminary, at Southern Seminary. And at one point, I think it was most of the time we were saying we lived in, we had lived in married student housing, um, which is a pretty cool setup at that particular campus. And at one point we had future IMB missionaries below us, above us, and to one side of us. And our friends said, oh, you guys are going to be missionaries. It's just, you're going to get sucked into the black hole of the missionaries because you're surrounded by us, right? And in fact, of those three couples, one went to Croatia, they're not there any longer, but we're there for 15 or 20 years. One went uh, to Thailand, and the others we lost track of before graduation because they moved off. But I have every reason to believe that, that they moved into international missions as well. I'm 46 years old. I'm fairly comfortable in my life these days. I like my job. I like the blend that I have of job and ministry. I like where my kids are at. There's so many things about my life that sometimes I have to recognize, wait, 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 but am I or would I be willing to do what Peter does here? And, and I think that is a good barb for me to feel. And you as well. In other words, I could, and I will do a little bit, I could very quickly say, oh, there's so many different ways to fulfill this calling, some of them is to give and to pray. I could very quickly sort of remove the sting of this verse to make us all feel okay about where we're going without any of us going home and wrestling with the Spirit that maybe we are called to do something like this. Well, those of us with children, I think about this. Do I talk to my kids in such a way about their futures that somehow without me realizing it, takes off the plate the opportunity for them to be international missionaries. Right? Something like, oh, I would want you to stick around here. I would want to be able to see you and your and whoever you marry, and I'd want to be able to be a part of my grandchildren's daily lives. You see how there's a way there, and that's all true. I would want that to be the case, but I deliberately talk to my kids in a way now that says, you know what? God might call you to go somewhere else. And I would be sad in some way about that, but the safest place for you to be is wherever God would call you. I do the same thing, honestly, my wife and I both, with our kids when we talk about marriage. Uh, we talk about some of you might be called the singleness. It's not assumed that all four of you will be married. I think that's helpful because that's a biblical calling. That's something that's, that's, that's available in Scripture. And the same exact thing happens here. That The one way that I want to feel the sting of this is, hey, I might, the next time I'm facing a transition, and for whatever reason I've faced numerous transitions, I don't want to shut the door towards something that would look maybe a little bit more uh, aggressive in following this than what I have up until this point. And neither should you. 
But the fact is, so I want it to feel, so this is, this is the balance that we have when these have these sizes. I don't want to lay on the guilt, everyone's supposed to do this, because we all know that everyone has a different calling. But on the other hand, I don't want to so quickly run to, well, you probably aren't called to this, to the point that the Spirit might not move and work where he's intending to move and work. But we do know that not everyone shares the same calling. And for evidence, we need to go nowhere further than the very book we're looking at now. Because here we have Jesus responding to these fishermen and says, Hey, from now on, you're going to be fishers of men. Leave everything and follow me. That's exactly what they do. The very next person Jesus interacts with in verse 12 is a leper. The guy comes up, shows extraordinary faith. He says, hey, if, if, you'll, if you will, you can make me clean, right? It's almost like on his own initiative. Hey, Jesus, I have faith that you can make me clean. When Jesus runs into the centurion a couple of chapters later, Jesus says, oh, you know, I've never met anyone who has faith like this in all of Israel. And I think of this leper, as like, this guy seems to have a lot of faith, right? Just like, hey, if you want to, you can make me clean. My whole life I've had leprosy, but I know you can do it. But then Jesus says, I will be clean. And then Jesus doesn't seem to give him the same calling as the disciples, Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing. He doesn't say anything about become a fisher of men. It seems like that that's the end of this person's calling. He's not called to follow Jesus in the exact same way that Simon Peter is called to follow Jesus. My favorite example of this in Luke is of the two tax collectors. Right? We have two prominent tax collectors in Luke. One's Matthew. Jesus walks up to Matthew and he says, follow me. Boom. Your task is very much like the fisherman's task. You're supposed to leave everything and follow me and Matthew does. Who's the next tax collector in Luke? Zacchaeus. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? Jesus walks up to Zacchaeus in a similar way. Now he's up in a tree. But Jesus pursues Zacchaeus in a similar way that he pursues Matthew. And he says, I'm going to go have dinner with you. And in the midst of the dinner, what does Zacchaeus say? Zacchaeus says, half of what I have I'm going to give to the poor, and anyone who I've taken money from, I'm going to return it. And you know what? Jesus doesn't say, you know what, Zacchaeus, that's pretty good, but see Matthew over there? He gave everything up. Zacchaeus, you're 50% as good of a follower as Matthew. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus says. Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today. Zacchaeus has a very different calling than Matthew. And isn't that the way that it's supposed to work? Isn't the master the one who tells us the calling? Sometimes I feel like we spend way too much time, us, thinking that we determine the calling without seeking the experience with Jesus that would allow him to tell us what the calling might be. Because that's the way it works. My favorite story on this one. In Luke, last one. Remember the man uh, who had the legion of demons? Jesus casts out the demons. He comes back. He's in his right mind. He's wearing clothes. People in the town are coming in like, look at this guy. He used to, he used to be out of his mind. And now here he is. He's saying and he's, he's thinking things through and, and you know, he's, he's being rational. And when Jesus is getting in the boat and leaving, I, this is a part of the passage I had missed until I was starting to look at this. That man wanted to go with Jesus. Remember what Jesus says to him? No, 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 no. You go back to your hometown. It's uneasy to understand why. The testimony of Jesus' grace, this man who is a madman, who now is, is, let's imagine, just a normal, godly man in his city for the rest of his days. 
It's easy to understand what Jesus' mission was in there, but I could totally imagine this guy saying, wait, 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 this isn't fair. I wanted to leave everything and follow you. I wanted to become a fisher of men like those guys, and you're not letting me do that. You're telling me to go do this. It's because the master is who sets the calling. The master has a different plan. And that's the point of our passage. The point of our passage is that whether it's the teaching of Jesus, or in this case, the miraculous event of Jesus, the primary thing that we're looking for is how do we respond to that experience with Jesus, and are we following the Master? So whether it's the teachings of Jesus as we read Scripture, or you hear the word preached, or whether it's some miraculous event from narrative of the Scriptures, or even in your own life, because I believe God still does miraculous things now. Are you using those as opportunities to seek a relationship with the master in which if the master tells you, leave everything and follow me, that you know that's the greatest good you have. That that pearl is so great it is worth selling everything for to pursue. But that won't come without seeking, fostering this relationship with the master, with Jesus and helping ourselves. And this is what the church is for, right? This is what brothers and sisters, we help one another with this process. And I know you guys as a church take this very seriously. And I love even, even the way that you're very intentional you talk about it. Hey, we're going, to, we're going to linger. We're going to talk. We're going to encourage one another. Well, that's one of the reasons for that. We are here to help each other, to encourage one another, to be able to both experience Jesus in community, but also to live out, to walk in whatever calling Jesus would have for us. Whether it's to leave everything, whether it's to sell half, or whether it's to go back to our city and live a relatively mundane, normal, routine life for the glory of God. In any of those cases, we're doing something uh, miraculous in response to Jesus' calling. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. You are a good God. Um, we pray, God, that you would use your word to encourage us. God, I pray that we would all this week, tomorrow, I pray for myself as well, that I would seek you. I would want to encounter you so that I could therefore um, respond appropriately to the callings that you're placing in my life, and I would know what they are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.